Good morning, friends. There are rules for nearly every aspect of our lives, and sometimes the rules get in the way. There can be so many rules that we have a hard time remembering them, much less applying them. When this happens, we have a couple choices. We can simply throw the rules out and ignore them altogether, or we can try to figure out a way to summarize and simplify the rules so that if we adhere to the summary, we're very likely to be following all the rules. Let's try it. I'm going to give you the seven rules for attending a public worship gathering. And yes, I see the irony here, but it'll be fun. Our job is to summarize these rules in a simple sentence or phrase. Here we go. Seven rules for attending public worship. Number one, be friendly. Smile and greet people as you enter the worship space. Number two, be on time and if late, enter quietly and sit in the back. Number three, silence your cell phone before entering the worship space. Number four, ask questions before you go the first time. Number five, dress appropriately. Number six, be observant. Watch what others are doing and follow their lead. Number seven, don't feel obligated to participate in ways that you aren't yet comfortable. Now, the question is, how would you summarize these rules in a simple phrase or sentence that would help you to follow all the rules? My summary might be something like this. Be respectful of people and their space. If you're respectful of people and their space, you're probably going to do pretty well at following those seven rules. Now, the scribes were experts in interpreting the law, the rules. The rabbinic tradition counted 613 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. 248 of these rules were positive commands, while 365 were prohibitions. How would you like to try and memorize all 613 of these commandments? No thank you. Believe it or not, some have all 613 memorized. No problem. Now, among these 613 commandments, the rabbis differentiated between what they called the heavy and the light commandments. The heavy commandments were the uncompromising essentials. They were more demanding of people, and breaking them came with some serious consequences. It was not uncommon for people to ask respected rabbis what they believed were the weightiest, the heaviest matters of the law. They're the most important rules. There was also not uh, uncommon to ask rabbis to summarize the Torah in a nutshell. The Jewish Mishnah and Talmud show us a bunch of examples of rabbis who did this. 20 years before Jesus, Rabbi Hillel summarized the Torah by giving a negative version of the golden rule. He said, 
What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. That's the entire Torah, Hillel said. Everything else is just interpretation. Well, Jesus too was prepared with his answer to summarize the whole of the 613 commandments. He said, love God and love your neighbor. Now, how capable are you of memorizing that? Will you pray with me? God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our minds and lead us into your truth so that we might better open up our hearts and our hands for the sake of Jesus Christ and the benefit of the world. Amen. Listen for Jesus's summary as we read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 to 44. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God and that no one dared to ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this Poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. 
But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The scribes and the Pharisees are almost always viewed in the New Testament as opponents or adversaries of Jesus, but not here. This story actually shows a scribe approaching Jesus on friendly terms. Rabbis reveled in debate. They could debate for days on the smallest of items. So our sincere scribe wants to know how would Jesus prioritize the rules? What command is supreme? Which commandment summarizes everything for all of humankind, for both Jew and Gentile alike? Jesus responds with what is known as the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. The Shema is the creedal statement of Judaism. It was recited by pious Jews every morning and every evening. Jesus gives it to us like this. He says, love God with four alls. Love God with all your heart or emotions. Love God with all your soul or spirit. Love God with all your mind or intelligence. Love God with all your strength or will. The scribe asked Jesus for one commandment, but Jesus' kind of brilliance is the addition of a new thing. Many rabbis of Jesus' day could have answered with the Shema, but Jesus combines the Shema with another command from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving neighbor are brought together in this single unity, most likely for the first time in history. For Jesus, the Shema, loving God, could only be fulfilled by loving your neighbor. And it was in the loving of our neighbor that we demonstrate our love for God. Jesus rejects religion that neglects the needs of our fellow human beings. Now, to first century Jews, neighbor meant something pretty simple. Neighbor meant Fellow Jews, love your own kind as you love yourself. But this is not what Jesus was teaching. Jesus expands our view of neighbor. Anyone who remembers the parable of the Good Samaritan knows that our neighbor is not the person in close proximity to us. It is not the people that live on our streets, but rather our neighbor is any person in need. And being neighborly is meeting those real needs. Jesus might say, love any person in need as you would love yourself, for this is how you show your love for God. Love fulfills the whole law, all 613 commandments of it. Love is the summary of all the rules. Love is the one word that we must not only memorize, 
but learn to apply. The scribe is pleased with Jesus's answer. Jesus tells this scribe that he's very close to the kingdom of God. And isn't it interesting that it says that no one dared ask Jesus any more questions? Why not? Because Jesus had won the debate. He put the issue to rest. He bested the field. The debate was closed. People walked away in agreement knowing that they had heard a very special teaching, a teaching from a man with authority. But as beautiful as this encounter was with this sincere scribe, the contest with the religious establishment resumes right away. Jesus was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, the very center of Judaism. Jesus, it said, was delighting the crowds with his teaching by contrasting the ostentatious religion of the scribes with the simple generosity of a poor, powerless widow. Based on Jesus's radical new summary of the law, he will put the scribes to the test. He wants to see, does their religion meet the standard of love for both God and neighbor? It's game on. He starts, beware of the scribes, Jesus said. They wore their full-length prayer shawls, these flowing robes which distinguished them as men of wealth and eminence. The best seats in the house were reserved for them in the front of the synagogue, and when scribes strolled down the streets of Jerusalem, everyone would have been expected to rise as they passed by, just like we do when the judge enters the courtroom. Jesus warns his disciples, beware of the scribes who want all the recognition and respect. Beware of the scribes who want to sit in the courtside seats at Staples Center, who put on a good show with long-winded prayers and fancy clothes. Being a scribe isn't the problem but rather certain scribal economic practices and policies were. It's the phrase devouring of widows' houses that receives Jesus's condemnation. The truth is we don't know exactly how the scribes were devouring widows' houses. I read multiple theories, but really didn't find any of them particularly compelling. But here is what we can be certain of. Mark is showing that even religious institutions can be complicit in the exploitation of the poor and most vulnerable. Even religious institutions can fail at the law of love. One of the great themes running through the biblical narrative is, of course, the care of the widow, the poor, and the orphan. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words. He said, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. 
James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Summed up, love God by loving others. The hypocrisy of the scribes is that they were actively devouring the poor and the vulnerable instead of caring for them. And in the process, they seem to have lost their tether to God. There's a scene in one of my favorite all-time movies, the 1972 classic, The Godfather, that captures this idea perfectly. Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, is becoming a godfather to his niece, while at the same time sealing his position as the godfather of the Corleone family in blood. The priest is doing his thing, while the perfect, sleeping, angelic baby lies motionless in her mother's arms. Michael Corleone is up front observing the baptism, knowing full well what his henchmen were plotting to do at that very same moment. The irony of the scene begins with the cameras showing his men cleaning and loading their guns while his niece is being baptized. The priest began asking Michael a series of questions about his faith in Jesus Christ, and then got to the question of, do you renounce Satan and his evil works? Michael quietly renounced Satan's evil works, and at that exact moment, the brilliance of the movie making, the camera pans to the men under his command gunning down his rivals in cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Jesus exposes the scribes' hypocritical practices pertaining to the poor in much the same way that the film exposed Michael Corleone as a gangster whose religious practices were a total sham. Jesus sat down, it said, in a place where he had a really good view of people offering their gifts at the temple treasury. The Jewish Mishnah says that there were 13 receptacles for receiving people's offerings. Many wealthy people were depositing large sums of money, but a poor widow dropped in her two copper coins, the smallest coins in circulation, worth a grand total of about a penny. I read an article in Forbes magazine that really rubbed me the wrong way. In Forbes, it said, you have to have a lot to give a lot. So by Forbes's standards, by the standards of many who probably would agree with Forbes, her gift was essentially good for nothing. Now, Jesus, of course, will strongly disagree. Consider this. Her gift that is said to have made no difference in the book of the temple treasury is immortalized in the book of life. Just think on that 
for a moment. Her gift meant something to Jesus. Jesus isn't condemning the wealthy who gave a lot. Jesus isn't saying that their gifts wouldn't and didn't make a huge difference. They did make a big difference and they do today. Just a few weeks ago, it was announced that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos will give $10 billion with a B to climate change research. My guess is that that gift will make a huge difference for our planet. But Jesus says that this woman who had, uh, that this woman had actually given more than Jeff Bezos. She had given more than $10 billion because she had given everything that she had. $10 billion is probably not even close to what Jeff Bezos has. It doesn't diminish the gift. It just says that this woman had given it all. God's accountant has a different measure because the magnitude of the gift can only be measured by the motivations of the heart. In other words, it's not the dollar amount, but the devotion amount that really counts. The scribes didn't meet Jesus' summary of the law because they failed to love God when they failed to love their brothers and sisters in need. I look at this passage and see the failure of the religious institution. I look at it and lament because I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing. This could just as easily be a lament of the ways in which our religious institutions today struggle to untangle themselves from a system that favors some while exploiting others. It should cause us in the church to proceed with caution, to check our motivations and to make sure that we're adhering to Jesus's summary of love, loving God and loving neighbor. Mark seems to want us to examine our hearts and our economic practices in order to make sure that we're doing what Jesus says is most important. When we love God and love neighbor, that is the summary of all 613 rules. That ensures that we will be a people that cares for the most vulnerable people in our communities. The poor widow is certainly a good example of discipleship. But I actually wonder if Mark is saying something even stronger than that. Is it possible that she actually serves as a Christ figure? Can we see the connection to Jesus on his way to the cross? We are in the season of Lent. Jesus is on 
this journey southward toward Jerusalem. And we have this picture, this image of this poor widow giving everything. She gave everything she had. In essence, she laid down her whole life. This is exactly what Jesus will do out of incredible love for the world on Good Friday. And maybe she is the model for Lightshine Church as well. In this unique time of no gathering in groups, this time of social distancing, both individually and together collectively, we will need to grapple with how will we best live out Jesus's command to love? How will we love God and love neighbor this week despite the restrictions that are placed on us? This will certainly require us to be creative, innovative, adaptive. We're going to have to find ways to be the gathered and scattered people of God differently than we're used to. Peace and well-being to you all, my friends.